Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. It's always an honor to have him because he ca- this man carries the Word of God, but he also carries an amazing prophetic gift, speaking truths into lives. And he's always encouraged me ever since I've met him at day one. And uh, I'm thrilled to have you back and thrilled to hear the Word of God for this afternoon as well. Why don't you give a big warm welcome to Bill as he comes. Amen. And let's give the clap offering to the one who really deserves it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory be to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. And just as I prayed much over the message that I delivered this morning, prayed much over what message to deliver in this afternoon service, so let's go before the Lord in prayer. And let's believe him to touch hearts as only he can and that he is going to get all the glory because that's what he deserves. Amen. Amen. Lord, we are excited to be in your house and amongst God's people, Lord God. It's such a, a privilege and an honor to be with your people and especially be with you. Lord, we pray that you will just move in a mighty way. God, that you will just touch hearts as only you can. Lord, hide your servant behind the cross that all might see Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, touch these lips of clay with a coal from the altar that you might be uplifted on high and you alone in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. The internet has tremendous value, and then, of course, there are some challenges as a result of having the internet. But one of the blessings of having the internet, and I don't know if you've ever checked out this website or not, but there is a website that uh, keeps track of the most accessed verses, Bible verses, on the internet. And it lists the top hundred. And, you know, every once in a while there'll be a change in the order, and as you might expect, John 3.16 is first. But today we are going to begin with a section of Scripture that almost always ranks second or third, and that it begins with Romans 8.28, which you probably know that God works all things out for good, and then it continues from there. So let's turn together to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. And our text today is going to be out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, till the end of the chapter, which is verse 39. And the title of this afternoon's message is, God Works All Things Out for Good. Amen. And we're going to begin reading in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And it reads this way. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, But gave him up for us all. 
How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And three points we want to deal with this morning. And the first one is this. It begins in verse 28. Do we really know what this verse means? I mean, we hear it so often, just like famous adages and so forth. I mean, we say them so often. Do we really know what they mean? Do we really know what Romans 8.28 means? Particularly because so often when people quote this verse, they chop off a large part of it. They say, well, God works all things out for good. Okay. But that's not the entire verse or even close to it, is it? There's a lot more to the verse than that. And so we want to look at it uh, and really examine what does this verse say, and it's even more powerful than we might have imagined because here is stated, first of all, that God works all things together for good. Now, it's interesting that it's, it's put in that way, that he works all things together for good, because how many here you like to cook? Put up your hands if you, wow, we have, boy, I want to taste your food. And I know some like to cook, right? And uh, so a lot of us love to cook, and it's, cooking's kind of interesting, because if you look at the ingredients that go into a recipe, a lot of times you look at the separate ingredients and you'll notice, for example, a lot of times baking powder. Ugh. Who wants to eat baking powder or baking soda? I mean, alone? Yuck. But it's all these things when they are put together, they turn out something delicious. A lot of times the individual ingredients, yuck. But all these things work together to produce something many times that is absolutely superb and delicious. And that's the way God works. And we need to realize that. Because a lot of times, let's face it, we will go through baking soda events in life or baking powder events in life. And if we say, yeah, this doesn't taste good at all. This must not be God. But wait a minute, you take some of those key ingredients out of the recipe and those cookies or whatever you're making, they are not going to taste very good. You need each of those ingredients and it's all together that it produces something absolutely delicious and that is often the way God works. We mustn't judge how things are going to work out on the basis of one or two single ingredients. It's all these things working together God uses to produce good. We need to realize that. In fact, let me ask another question. I've already determined that there are a lot of good cooks 
in our midst. People like to cook. How many of you also, you like coffee? How many of you like coffee? Even if you didn't raise your hand to the first one, oh, we got a lot of people like, and that's, you know, that's something in, in England particularly, you know, wouldn't have gotten this response maybe 30 or 40 years ago as much. And the thinking was, okay, in, in America you drink coffee, and in Britain, you know, you drink tea and so forth. But I've one change I've noticed works the other way in America, too. We have more and more tea drinkers in the United States, so it, it seems to have worked both ways. But uh, a lot of people, they like a good cup of coffee, and that's evidenced by the fact that I see a lot of Starbucks, I see a lot of Nero's, and all kinds of places that, that offer uh, coffee. And, you know, some of the prices in the coffee shops are rather on the expensive side. And, you, you know, you really, might, uh, you really might wonder why it is that people are willing to pay that price for coffee when they can just as easily make it at home for a lot cheaper price. I mean, it is really quite amazing. You go into a lot of coffee shops, and the lines are really long. I mean, a lot of people are willing to pay a premium price to get coffee as opposed to, to making it at home. And they've actually had some articles written on this topic because, you know, the reality is, on average, a cup of coffee in a coffee shop tastes better than the cup of coffee that you make at home. I mean, that's just reality. On average, that's usually the case. And that's one of the reasons why people are willing to go and pay that price uh, in a coffee shop. So the question then emerges, okay, why is it that, again, on average, a cup of coffee in a coffee shop tastes better than the one that you make at home? Um, now, obviously, it's not, uh, not due to the beans because coffee connoisseurs will tell you the two most important uh, components of what makes a good cup of coffee are, number one, the beans. Okay, no surprise. But wait a minute. Same beans, a lot of cases, buying it in a coffee shop versus taking it at home. I mean, Starbucks many times, you know, they have Pike Place or, you know, very various varieties of coffee. You can either get uh, by asking for it at the counter or by buying uh, a, um, an entire bag of coffee and, you know, taking it, uh, taking it back home, an entire package. And so the beans clearly are not the difference in terms of why it is that coffee on average tastes better in a coffee shop than at home. But the second key ingredient that makes for a great cup of coffee, according to coffee connoisseurs, is how long you are able to roast uh, the coffee, brew the coffee, and um, at what temperature. How long can you uh, brew the coffee at a very high temperature, and that's the second ingredient. And that turns out to be the difference maker, meaning in a Starbucks or a Nero's or what have you, they are able to brew the coffee at a higher temperature for a much longer period of time than typically you do at home. And that really turns out to be the most important reason why, on average, a cup of coffee tastes better buying it at a Starbucks, Nero's, or, you know, local coffee shop than it does at home. And there is spiritual significance there because, in essence, what, what's being said is coffee tastes good to the degree to which those coffee beans, having ground them, have been through some hot water. I hope you're beginning to see where this sermon is going. And I, I've gotten to know quite a number of you, and um, we have some beautiful people in this church. I mean, just lovely spirits 
that people have. And one of the reasons why we have such beautiful people in this church is a number of you, a lot of you, have been through some hot water. Meaning, you know, when you go through trials in life, really you have a decision to make. We all have a decision to make when we go through hot water in life. We can either allow it to make us bitter, okay, and angry, or we can make the decision that, you know what, God is using this and I'm going to allow these circumstances to make me into a much better person and a much more compassionate person, a softer person than I would be otherwise. And a lot of us here have made that decision. We've gone through hot water and we're the better for it and you're beautiful people and one of the reasons why is you folks have been through some hot water. Amen. God works all things together for good. He uses these things. He uses hot water. He uses trials to make us into better people. But the verse doesn't even stop there because it says God works all things for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who love him. We mustn't leave out that portion. You know, love is so important, more important than we realize. I mean, God, for example, identifies himself very few ways in the Bible, uh, but we are told God is love, okay? And he could say God is rich or anything else, but he, he chooses to identify himself really as love and as one who is holy. That's really who we are told God is. He is love. We're told that the mo- when Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment, Love of God, love of neighbor, love is so central. And we're even told that we love him because he loved us first. Love is so important. In fact, love is so important in the gospel that, you know, a lot of us may not be aware of this. We may be aware that the New Testament is largely written in Greek. We probably already know that. But what we may not know is that love was so central to Christianity and is so central to Christianity and so foreign to a lot of people's thinking that before Christianity came along, the Greek language did not have a word for compassion. Because to accommodate Christianity, the Greeks had to come up with a word for compassion because before Christianity came along, there was no word for compassion in the Greek language. It changed everything because Christianity asserted everyone is equal before God. God shows no partiality, we are told. And then in Galatians, we are told there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Everyone is equal before God. And see, I, as, a, as you know, I'm not only a missionary evangelist, but I'm a professor, and I write a lot about history, books, and so forth. And if you look at history, the reality is, is that Christianity changed the world because no one, no culture in the world believed, before Christianity came along, no culture in the world believed that everyone was equal before God. No one believed that. The understanding was that if you were king or queen or emperor or empress or shogun or what have you, you were above your subjects and everyone was below you. And Christianity came along and said, uh-uh, 
Everyone is equal before God. And that's so important to understand, not only biblically, but historically, because that is why Christians were so viciously persecuted in the first few centuries. Because even though Jesus did not mean Christianity to be a political movement, but instead was concerned with the spiritual, the leaders of the time understood the ramifications of Christianity. They understood that if everyone in the world thought that they were equal to the king, queen, emperor, empress, shogun, what have you, it would stir revolution. And so the thinking of the kings and queens and all the royalty and so forth was, what? The slaves think they are equal to me? The women think they are equal to me? How dare they? And so no surprise, interestingly enough, 80% of the early Christians of the first few centuries of Christianity were either slaves or women because for the first time they were getting respect. They understood that they were equal before God. Christianity, it changed the world. Now in you know, many founding documents and many documents that came along in Great Britain later and then also the United States and so forth, declaring that people are, are equal, it was, it was because of Christianity so... This is so important that God works all things out for good who love him. Then it doesn't even stop there. We're still on just one verse. And are called according to his purpose. Now this is also extremely vital that we need to really be mature enough in the Lord so that we seek out God's purposes as being more valuable than our own. In fact, for those of us who are parents, grandparents, maybe even we have some great-grandparents in our midst, I don't know, but if we have generations that are following us that are now coming up into their teen years and then young adult years and into their 20s and so forth, one of the things we really need to teach them when they seek out a mate and believe for a mate for their lives is that God's choice is better than their own. That's the best. To say, God, who is the person that you have for me? That's one of the greatest things, I think, that we can teach our teens as they begin to pray for their future mate and people in their 20s. I think that's one of the greatest principles that that we can teach them, that God knows the perfect person for us. I am a romantic, I will admit. And you know what? One of the reasons I'm a romantic is I think it's biblical. It is very difficult to read the Song of Solomon and not come to the conclusion that God is a romantic. And I say, hallelujah! God is a romantic, and he does, I believe, have the special person. Not just, okay, here's the list, and so forth. The special ideal person. And we really need to train our children, our grandchildren, to believe for that special person, and that God's choice is better than theirs. You know, think about it. I mean, really, how often we hear the phrase, I'm sure you've heard this before, leave it to the experts, meaning there are certain things we really shouldn't try on our own. And if we do try on our own, we get into trouble. I know, for example, a number of friends who have tried to fix their own roof. Leave it to the experts because a few of them have fallen off the roof and they've paid for it in a mighty big way. There are just certain things that we say. Leave it to the experts. I mean, for example, if if you were to... um, suddenly discover one day that, oh, my, my eyesight isn't as sharp as it used to be. I really need to correct 
my lenses or maybe even make new ones or what have you or get new contacts, how many of you would say, ah, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll try to put together some glasses on Monday. Okay, no. You would leave it to the experts. You would go to an ophthalmologist or, you know, what have you, an optometrist and leave it to the experts. Or how many of you, and don't mistake me as, as encouraging this, this is just uh, used illustratively, but let's just say that you look in the mirror one day and you come to the conclusion that your face is sagging, okay? And let's face it, gravity does win. I mean, it does have a tendency to win. You know, it, it pulls on us over time. And, you know, we look in the mirror and we see, you know, our faces sagging and, you know, we start to do this and, you know, this kind of a thing. And then we determine that, wow, you know, my face is sagging so badly, I need a facelift. Now, again, don't run out of here saying we have to have this crazy American preacher come in encouraging a facelift. No. My view is rejoice in every gray hair, okay? Rejoice in every wrinkle because then we are one wrinkle and one gray hair closer to glory. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay. Oh, that got the strongest amen of all. Okay. That, that is my view. Okay. But if you were considering getting a facelift, which again, I discourage, how many of you would say... I'll make the incision on Tuesday. You know, I'll take care of it. I'll, you know, do the facelift. It'll work out okay. No one would do that. No one does that. You leave it to the experts. Again, I don't recommend it, but again, illustratively, you would leave it to the expert. Now, if that's true about our eyes deteriorating on us and our, our sagging face or what have you, how much more should that be so for life? Leave it to the expert. And God is the expert on life. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He knows it all. So what fools are we if we try to run life ourselves Then, rather than go to the expert? It actually makes more sense to do our own glasses and to do our own facelift than to go about living our lives based on our so-called wisdom and knowledge. God is the expert. His purposes are best. And when we plug into those purposes, wow, life takes off. Amen? Amen. Second point we want to make begins in verse 29 and uh, continuing, and that is God can get the job done. We need to believe that. Now, a lot of people, they get intimidated by verse uh, 29 to verse 31 and on to verse 32, and they because it talks about predestined and all that, and people get fearful that they have to get into some theological argument if they're going to read this passage. But uh, I don't think that's really God's main idea here. God did not have uh, us to read verses 29 to 32 in Romans chapter 8 so that we could get into some theological discussion. I mean, if a person wants to, fine, but that's not God's main purpose. God's main purpose here is to communicate that he can get the job done. He gets it done. And a lot of times we think, oh, wow, you know, I think I've, I've really blown it. God can't use me. 
ever again and so forth. But we forget Romans 11 verse 29, which says, The gifts and call of God are irrevocable. His hands are open to us as open as they have ever been. We just need to lay hold of the Lord. We need to be, we need to be positive people. We need to realize that, yes, the last word of the Bible is amen. We know who wins. And that fact should change our lives. People ask me, how do you, you know, I say, be positive. And um, they say, well, you know, why be positive? And then I share with them. God wins. We know that God wins. Last word of the Bible is amen. We're told in Revelation uh, that he wins. That affects everything. I mean, it's much like, imagine this. I'm sure, at least if you're a good member of the church, and some, of, some people might be hearing this on tape who should be here and are not. Maybe they'll be convicted by this portion here. But If you're a good member of the church, there might be some sporting event playing right now on television or what have you. I don't know. Manchester United or I don't know, you know, what's going on, all right? And that may not even be your favorite team, okay? But, you know, one of your favorite teams. And uh, I'm sure some games occur on Sunday. And instead of watching it, you you go to church and you might might record it on your DVR, you know, and you might uh, uh, see it later on. Okay, after the service is over, you've recorded it, and then you watch the results. But so often, now some of you might want to keep it a secret and not know, you know, not look up who won. But most of us, you know, we want to find out who won. And we watch the recording knowing full well who has won. And it affects the way we view the game, doesn't it? I mean, if our team is behind, but we know that they won, we don't start going, oh, no, it's all over, they've blown it again. (laughs) That would be insane. You already know they won. It affects everything. It's the outcome that counts. Well, guess what? That's what we have with God. We already know the outcome. It's also true, uh, I think they come to, to uh, England sometimes, but um, we have a, a team in the United States that's not really a professional team, but then again they are, the Harlem Globetrotters, okay, and they tour the world and they've been around for decades, and they always play the same team, the Washington Generals, and it's a fix. Everyone understands that it's a fix, it's entertainment, and I think it's now been for 55 years in a row, the Harlem Globetrotters have won every game. So tens of thousands of games they've won in a row. And the Washington Generals are not a bunch of stiffs. A lot of them go on to play in the NBA, but everyone understands it's fixed. And I like to watch the Harlem Globetrotters. In fact, by the way, a a Christian bought them out. So it's now Christian-owned and operated, which gives much more incentive to go to the games. But anyway, when I watch a Harlem Globetrotter game, which sometimes uh, I do, and they fall behind by a point, I don't go up to my wife and say, Sweetie, sweetie, we've got to pray. They're behind. You already know they're going to win. And what was so entertaining is one time I I picked up an issue of the Chicago Tribune, and it had a special article about the Harlem Globetrotters. And the article, uh, in the article, the reporter interviewed the coach of the Washington Generals and asked, come on, you've lost tens of thousands of games in a row. Why Why don't you just admit that the game is fixed? 
And I was pretty stunned with the response. The coach of the Washington General said, Oh, no, no, the games aren't fixed. We're just on a little bit of a bad streak. (laughs) And you'd really have to be kooks to believe the guy, okay? But you know what? The devil tries the same thing. He tries to convince us. We say, come on, Satan, you just... Why don't you just admit the outcome is fixed? I mean, we need to realize leaving here today, the game is fixed. The outcome is fixed. God wins. Now, Satan will say, oh, no, 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 no. It's not fixed. But you'd have to be foolish to believe him. We've got to be positive. And we've also got to be people of the moment and not focus too much on the past because if we, yes, we need to learn from the past, but if we focus too much on the past, we can miss out on the opportunities that God gives us today. You know, we can kick ourselves and say, oh, why did I do that? What a dummy! And so forth. But meanwhile, sometimes we're missing out on the opportunities of today. Sometimes I've uh, seen people, they... They don't do this so much anymore, more years ago, but still occasionally you see it. Hitchhiking. You know, they'll try to get a ride, usually on some desert road or something like that. And uh, sometimes maybe they're not trying hard enough and they get tired and they go like this. And then they start to kick themselves and say, oh, I would have gotten that ride if only I had put my finger out more and looked more desperate. (laughs) I could have had that ride. Meanwhile, there are like 10 cars that pass by that they could have gotten a ride with, but they're bemoaning so much and complaining so much about the missed opportunities, they miss more. Doesn't make sense. And so many people also kick themselves. You know, my wife and I, we do a lot of family counseling. And one of the comments we get from people the most, sadly, is they'll say they think God is angry at them. Well, I'm sure there are times that God gets angry, but I'm not talking about, you know, angry for a moment, like, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't have done that. I'm talking about people who think God's just angry at them, period, always angry at them. And it's hard to really believe that. I mean, at least if people are trying to follow the Lord, because all you have to do is uh, look at verse 32 to realize how much God loves us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Wow. Just as the old song says, oh, how he loves you and me. What love. But still, there are a lot of people that go around thinking that God is somehow habitually angry at them. And when we do run into such an individual, we usually ask them three questions. First question, and this is really being addressed to those of us who might struggle with that. Number one, we ask, when was the last time You allowed yourself to be overwhelmed with the love of God in as real a way as the day you were saved. You know, sometimes we just need to allow God to overwhelm us with how much he loves us. So many many times we're so busy giving out, but even the best cars either need an electrical charge or a gasoline 
fill and so forth. They need to be refueled in one way or another. We all need to be refueled and we can only give out love as believers insofar as we have first received. And sometimes the best thing we can do is, God, oh God, just love on me. Love on me. I don't deserve, even as we were singing, we sure don't deserve it. We don't deserve those royal robes. But praise God, he's chosen to share his home with us. And his robe of of white, so to speak, representing the purity that we have because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Second question that we ask is we often ask them, do you spend a lot of time with angry people? Because, you know, that's not a healthy thing. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we we need to cut off relations with all these people, but I am saying that it's good to surround ourselves with positive, loving, compassionate people. And if we're constantly around people who are angry, we begin to think, well, they're angry at me. God must be angry too. And it may be our parents. It may be our brother. It may be our sister. It may be our neighbor. It may be our boss. But what have you, we we need to reevaluate Because one of the reasons we sometimes think that God is angry at us is because we surround ourselves with angry people and we hear all these angry things all day long and think, well, God must be the same as a human being as God is very different than your normal human being. And then the third question we ask them is, to what extent are you an angry person yourself? Now, I am not a strong believer in Freud at all. I mean, I think uh, Freud was probably, in many cases, more messed up than those (laughs) he was diagnosing much of the time. I mean, that's, and and I say that, by the way, as someone who is trained in psychology and is a family counselor in both secular university and, uh, and graduate school. But I believe he had a few things uh, right, a few things to contribute. And one of them was his idea of projection, meaning a lot of times, have you ever run into someone who says something like, why are you so angry at me? And you're kind of going, what? And you're just being calm as anything, okay? And they're basically projecting, okay? And a lot of times, uh, people who are angry people think that others are angry at them when in reality they're not, including God. And you read this verse, though, and you realize, sure, there are times when God's disappointed and he may get angry at us for specific incidents and so forth, but this habitual anger... What a loving God we serve. Praise God who did not spare his only son. Therefore, how much more will he give us all things with him? That is the God that we serve. So how do we take action on this? Because, uh, I mean, how does this apply to daily life? Because the last point we want to make is the practical implications of all this And God uses the Apostle Paul to really highlight some of these implications. And one of them is verse 35, is who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then we clearly understand that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. And what this means, given that God loves us so much, what does this mean? Well, number one thing it means is that we can step out on faith. We can step out on faith Because we have a loving God who is within us, if we know Jesus. We have a loving God who supports us. We have a loving God who's going to see us through. We can step out on faith. 
Now, I must admit, uh, I am a sports fan. Some of you who have seen me preach here before know that I am a sports fan, and I think many times there are spiritual principles to be learned from nature. I'm a strong believer in that, that God reveals himself in nature in so many ways. And I believe even in uh, sports activities, you can learn a lot. And uh, I do like hockey. I like the National Hockey League. And if you ask just about any hockey fan, in, at least in North America, okay, who is the greatest hockey player of all time? It's kind of amazing the consensus you will get. Almost everyone, whether they be Canadian, American, what have you, will say Wayne Gretzky. Okay, his statistics are just, they're off the charts. And whether you've heard of him or not, you know, whatever, you know, you can look him up on the internet and you'll, you'll understand if, if you're not a hockey fan already. And uh, he's, you know, long since retired, but um, he was asked one time, what is the key for you for being such an outstanding hockey player? And I'll never forget what he said because I immediately thought of a spiritual principle But Wayne Gretzky answered, the key for me, he said, is I think not in terms of where the hockey puck is. I think of where it's going to be, and I make sure I'm there. And if we really want to discern God's will and step out on faith, it's wonderful to ask God, what are you doing now? But if we really want to get close to God and be in the center of God's will, Lord, what are you doing next? I want to be there. I want to be there. I don't just want to be where the puck is now, so to speak. I want to be where it's going. God, what are you doing next? And that's even more powerful than God, what are you doing now? If we really want to be cutting edge, very cutting edge of what God is doing, God, what are you doing next? And praise God, so exciting when he reveals it, and praise God, we're right there. We can step out on faith because we know that God works all things out for good who loves him and those who are, for those who are called according to a pur- his purpose, and nothing separates us from the love of God. Second uh, principle that is applicable as a result of these realities is that we recognize that we can only be victorious by God's help. Now, I'm going to share with you uh, one of my very favorite verses, um, certainly in uh, Genesis, but even in the Old Testament. It might surprise you. It's Genesis chapter 41 and verse 16, and it reads, it starts, I cannot do it. You might say, oh my goodness, I thought you were talking about being positive. Well, you got to read the rest of the verse, just as the verse that is up there. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. We can't do it alone. It's, it's all God. I mean, it is all God. We can't do it. If you're up against a situation in your life in which you're saying, this is too much for me, I can't do it, what I say to you is congratulations. You're on step one, just need to go to step two and realize that God can do it and we're there. That's really the key. And there's so many places in Scripture where uh, you see this. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, statements like that, recognizing we can't do it. 
can't do it. It's God. And so many times I, <laughs> I remember, in fact, uh, preaching. I, I was at a church many, many years ago. It was over 30 years ago. It's one of the most discouraging Sunday mornings I ever had because the pastor, I mean, I really got the sense that he did not want God to move. You know, we were talking about time restrictions on the service, and he, you know, he was just, everyone was to finish by a certain time. And it was, I mean, it was finish at 1049, not 1049.5, 1049, finish this part at 1103. You know, finish this part at 11.18, and we don't dare go beyond 12 noon. And if you do go beyond 12 noon, I'll take the microphone from you. I mean, that's where he was at. And even his wife complained. Because, you know, I I've kind of felt bad for me, but I didn't have to live with the guy. You know, I could just go on to the next church, you know. But I really, she just poured her heart out to me and said, yeah, this is the way he is. Can you imagine living with him? I mean, that's basically what she said. And it came to the Sunday evening service. I was there for two services, and really, I was discouraged. I was thinking, how can God move in an environment like this? And I said to the Lord, I was very upfront with the Lord. I said, God, I don't even want to be here tonight. I mean, this is just so, it's, it's almost anti-spirit of God. I mean, I, I, don't even, I don't even want to be here tonight. I cannot preach here tonight without your help, and I just kind of felt like God saying, oh, goody, now I really get to do what I want to do. And wow, did God move, and my amazement revival broke out. And it was just, and even the pastor couldn't stop the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just moved, and we were there for hours as person after person baptized in the Holy Spirit, healed, you name it. Revival broke out that night, and I just said, God, only you could pull that off. And praise God, that's the first step when we say, I cannot do it. And so many times that's when God says, oh, goody. And boy, does he move. Hallelujah. And the third result of realizing these principles is that we can prepare. And there is a joy in preparing. We need to, you know, a lot of times we live in a society, I talked about this this morning, they want easy answers, they want microwave Christianity, they don't like the idea of preparing, but preparing is, a, is an, act of, it's an act of faith, preparing for what God is about to do. When I was an unbeliever, I haven't played chess in many, many years uh, but when I was uh, an unbeliever, I loved to play chess. And this is before, you know, you could play against computers and so forth, uh, you know, and, and play that way. You'd, to practice, you kind of have to play against yourself. And uh, I bought some chess opening books, and I would study them in preparation for tournaments. And, and I would prepare um, and that was the key to, to winning. And a lot of times in, in chess, some people would ask, well, why do you want to study chess openings? What's the point? And the point is that you want to be in a position and have your pieces uh, controlling the middle squares. And in this one way, chess is similar to checkers. And checkers, if you control the middle squares, you usually win. And in chess also, if you control the middle squares after six, seven, eight moves on each side, usually if you don't make any mistakes or don't make many mistakes, you end up winning. 
And so the idea is you prepare with these chest openings so that your chest pieces can be in an advantageous position. It doesn't guarantee you a victory. You're playing absolutely no one, but it's part of preparation. And the same thing is so in the Christian life. We prepare. And sometimes we may think, why am I preparing? Why am I doing this? But if you allow God to place yourself in an advantageous situation, whatever you're uh, planning for, preparing for, believing God for, you're more than likely to see God intervene. But we need to take action, folks. I really believe this is an action church. And we need to take back territory that the enemy, the devil, has taken away from the church. Amen? I mean, we need to stand up to the devil. I mean, we can talk about all the verses in the world about how we can have, as Christians, uh, authority over the demonic, but we're not going to have authority over the demonic if we can't... How are we going to gain victory over the devil if we can't even gain victory over a, a piece of devil's food cake? You ever think about that? Oh, that devil's food cake is overcoming me. I have to give in. No, no, I can't stand it. How on earth can we talk about gaining victory over the devil if we lose out to a piece of devil's food cake? That's my question. We got to take this stuff seriously. We got to step out on faith because God has powerful things in store for this fellowship. And God has powerful things in store for us individually. Because he works all things out for good. Amen. For those who love him, we love him, and are called according to his purpose. And we today are called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.